0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Walkaran. More importantly, today I get to speak with Dr. Holly Walters, um, who is a cultural anthropologist at uh, Wellesley College in Massachusetts. We're talking about a really fascinating book on a very um, uh, intriguing topic, uh Charlotte Graham Pilgrimage in the Nepal Himalayas. Uh, it's a brand new 20, 2020 um, Amsterdam University Press publication. Holly, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here.
0: So perhaps the most uh, the most pedestrian question I ask uh, naive questions, but sometimes they might be more complex than they appear. What is a cheligram? I mean, maybe you're trying to answer that in the book, but what is what would your you know what would your sort of um, elevator pitch be about?
1: Right. Um, I mean, obviously, that's usually the most common question. And it's, I think, for for any scholar, it's both the simplest question and it's the one that takes you forever to try and explain. Um, The short, short answer is that a shellogram stone is a type of black fossil ammonite. Um, The ammonites are a kind of fossilized cephalopod, so they form a very distinct spiral shell shape. They're found all over the world. But a shaligram stone is a very specific type of black ammonite fossil that originates in the Kaligandaki river valley of Himalayan Nepal. And they take a very specific kind of transformative journey both geologically and metaphysically to become a kind of sacred stone, specifically a kind of sacred stone that is a manifestation of a deity.
0: Excellent. Clearly, you've perfected the art of giving the nutshell, here's what it is, and some tantalizing bits in there for further questioning. Um, How long have they been um, used in the cultural and religious life in Nepal?
1: That's actually even more of a complicated question, surprisingly. there's Because obviously there's what we have a, a kind of archaeological sense of, and then there's what exists in text, and they're not entirely the same thing. The again, the short answer is I can generally demonstrate ritual and religious use of Shalagram stones in the Kaligandaki River Valley dating back to about the second century BC. They probably predate that and they probably predate that by quite a bit, but the first real evidence that we have of shalagram ritual practice in the Nepal Himalayas is about the second century BC.
0: And in which texts um, would we find these early sources, citations? The
1: earliest earliest citational sources of it are from the Puranic texts. Um, They are mentioned a little bit earlier than that in inscriptions. Um, In certain archaeological and temple inscriptions they they show up a little bit earlier than that, but the first actual text about them is Puranic text.
0: Oh, the Puranas uh tr- sanskritic culture and popular religion what do you do with them um i think my entire career is trying to figure part of that out and and you know in, in my particular case it's hey we have you know uh the uh, the, the first text in the history of indian religions and in sanskrit anyhow about a great goddess and to my knowledge the only living tradition of great goddess veneration since antiquity I don't believe for a second that some 15 centuries ago everyone was like, "Hey, we need a cosmic mommy. Let's do this." I, I, this there must have been there must have been some 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 you know some tradition that led up uh, to this textual moment, and, then, and and I imagine I imagine your hunch is bang on that there must have been some long standing tradition of of being captivated by these these fossilized shells. Uh, that either Puranas, being the Puranas, try to Trojan horse into the Sanskritic tradition as, "Hey, this has always been the case." But anyhow, more on the Puranas uh, um, um, uh, uh, in a bit. Um, how did you get interested in this?
1: That's also a bit of a circuitous story. It's, so this actually all starts about a decade ago. It starts in 2012, and I had just started my master's program. Um, and I was interested, I had long been interested already in South Asian religion, particularly I was looking at Hindu ritual practice and, and I had just sort of started at that point getting religious training and getting training in the study of religion and the study of Hinduism. And I originally proposed a project um, that I was going to go to India and I did en- end up going to India for, for several months where I wanted to look at ritual deity care. So I was interested in the way people constructed deities, Murtis, the way that they interacted with them, how that impacted everyday life. Sort of, I, I had this grand plan and like so many scholarly endeavors, my grand plan did not exactly work out the way that I had hoped. In fact, it worked out sort of better. I had been in, i had started in Calcutta. And I was working with a couple of temples in that area when I think I had been there for, for quite some time, actually. And I happened to sort of notice simply by chance that uh, a practitioner that I was working with had these black stones um, in his home mandir, in, in his home worship. And of course, being a, an anthropologist, I sort of casually asked like, so what, you know, what's with the, the fossil stones? And that was the very first time I actually ever heard the word "shalaram," And it surprised me even at that point, because I had been studying the texts and the religion for a while, and it was simply a word I had never heard before. I had no idea what it meant, didn't know what he was talking about, and that prompted obviously more questions like, what do you mean what does What is this thing? And... I didn't get a lot of information about it. Mostly the responses I got were well if you really want to understand Chhaligram Stones, you'll you'll have to go to Nepal. Um but no one really talked about it. And it wasn't until a bit later I went back to my home university at the time and my home university and graduate school was Brandeis University that has a dedicated South Asian Studies program. And so I went over to SAS, to my professors in South Asian studies and figuring they will definitely know what this thing is. I can, I can ask them. And ironically enough, uh, most of the professors I had sort of responded with, oh, I, I think I remember something along those lines. Like maybe my grandfather had one when I was a kid, but I don't really know. Then I was like, fine, I will go to the libraries. Certainly someone's written extensively about this. There's gotta be books out there, scholars out there who talked about this and mostly came up with nothing. Just a couple of mentions and texts here and there. Yeah, still nothing that I was looking for. Went back to my then, who became my PhD committee, told them the whole story. Like there's this thing, it's called a shalogram stone. I can't really find anything about it. Nobody seems to understand it here, and the response I got was, "Well, I know what your dissertation's about," and that's how it started.
0: Fantastic! And from what I gather from both your tone and the monograph, no regrets, huh? <laughs> no regrets for for, for falling nope. down this shallow ground rabbit hole. Absolutely
1: uh. not. Uh, I went. I went back uh, about a year later started with a new pilot project, um, ended up going to Nepal in 2015, spending quite some time in Nepal in 2015. And it was after that, that I finally ended up proposing the larger project that would become my dissertation, that would become obviously the book later on. And honestly, I've never, I, I've never been apart from them since.
0: Listen, I, did a, uh, I was doing a master's in the Valmiki Ramayana at the University of Toronto. And I was fortunate enough to be doing some research work uh, for um, uh, with the professor of defense studies at the Royal Military College of Canada. So, you know, I was interested in uh, violence, ethics, ethics of violence. And uh, for you listeners, I'm I just I'm just recovering from a cold, but I, I'm I assure you I will survive uh, if I sound a little muted today. Um, 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 So the master plan was to continue this and do a PhD at U of T, uh, deepening my my research into the Valmiki, the but nope. Apparently the Devi had other plans for me and swept me up to Calgary <laughs> to study of the Devi Mahatman And I, I didn't even begin to realize um, how understudied that text was until, uh, you know, uh, seven years later, I'm still not sure if anyone else is working on it mm-hmm. um, primarily. Anyhow, um, the things, uh, the things that destiny does, when I'm trying to study one thing. Um, so you've got this, you've got this phenomenon that you can't make sense of, and you're looking to make sense of, which is a fantastic topic for, for any kind of research. Um, how, how do you go about making sense of it? Right. So I, I mentioned at the outset that you're a cultural anthropologist, but do you look at text? Do you talk to people? Like, how do you gather your data for this book?
1: Yeah. So, and I think even in, in the early part of the book, um I think you can sort of tell that in about chapter two or so that one of the things I even write about is how complicated I found even doing that part so I I ended up starting mostly because I'm an ethnographer um I'm coming out of cultural anthropology so I just started seeing if I could meet practitioners um trying to talk to people who had either gone on Shalgram pilgrimage themselves or who had shalogram stones in their home practice or who knew something about the practice of shalograms from either generational or from their relatives. And it was very piecemeal to begin with. It it wasn't something that just sort of, oh, and there it is. It, it was very much a kind of slow figuring it out on, on my own where meeting one person is what would help me meet the next person, which is what would help me meet the next person, and I was able to very slowly build off of that until I started to realize that I had something of a background in the practice enough that I could be conversant in it, and the more conversant I was in Chaligram practice, the more people were willing to converse about it. That it's it's sometimes I think the
0: secret society. Think-
1: <laughs> Well, not only, not only that, I, I think it had more to do with, we, we tend to think, at least ethnographers sometimes, tend to think like, oh, I'm gonna come into this as a blank slate and I'm the dumbest person in the room and just you know sort of send me the information from there. I actually found that the more expertise I gained in it, the easier it was for me to access communities and practitioners because they wanted to see that I had something to talk about regarding chaligram stones, or that I could talk about them in a particular way before they were willing to trust me with more information about them.
0: Uh, that's, that's fascinating. So one of the truisms in the back of my brain is, is when um, examining, you know, when studying, researching South Asia, um, uh, the data of South Asia, if you will, um, uh, if, if that research doesn't alter your method and or theory in the process, you're not doing it right.
1: <laughs> and absolutely, and it absolutely did.
0: Um, but but what I'm interested I'm interested in a number of things. Uh, but in what you just said, um, this idea of them actually not opening up unless you demonstrate until you demonstrated a certain level of familiarity, could it could it also be related to comfort or judgment or was it anything about perhaps your positioning is it outside of your tradition, or could, could you maybe speculate as to why they would need you to sort of indicate that you were on board before they would they would continue?
1: Oh, oh, absolutely. no, positionality has almost everything to do with it, um, particularly from a cultural point of view the The concern obviously that I tend to come into it is obviously, I am not from South Asia, so I am coming from you know, obviously being an American, coming from the American Academy, that has its own issues and histories going on with it. What I tended to find was most important to the people that I was working with, especially, was that they had had a lot of, I would say, reasonably negative experiences with what I would term a sort of crystal magic new age culture. And so their principal concern, given the fact that they are practitioners with sacred fossils, was that the more information about chalogram stones that got out there, the greater danger the chalogram stone itself would be in of commodification, that I was going to come into it seeking to get stones myself to sell, or that they were going to become involved in something like an American uh, New Age movement or... Commodified in some way along those lines, and so the mistrust had a lot to do with fears about whether or not I was going to take the practice seriously and and or whether or not I was seeking to gain control of the stones or that the stones were going to be taken away and then
0: sold. That's fascinating you know um, without knowing uh, without having any knowledge of this 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 commodifying sort of new age crystal seeking piece of the equation one would suspect hey you know what um we don't want to be made fools of inf- uh, by virtue of some sort of reductionistic scholarship or yeah. fetishized or othered or the you know these backwards people we really have this conceit in modern times that the ancients weren't um rational thinkers and i i mean look look at look at the look at some of the um um architecture alone that's so the test of time and art clearly You know they're able to code switch, and then you want to use their sacred brain, or want to use their mundane brain, or however you want to think of it. And, and, and one would think that hey, we don't want you reducing this, but really they're like hey, we don't want you selling this as snake oil to anybody. Yes, (laughs) that's hilarious.
1: But that absolutely was one of the primary concerns. Is you know are you are you trying to come in to take them because you're going to sell them in your crystal shop or or something along those lines, and. But they did still have a very similar concern because one of the things that people kept sort of telling me over and over again was, I know it's a fossil. And that didn't strike me as importantly as it should have right away. It was something that I picked up on a little bit later that I realized really what they were saying is, I get science, I get plate like yes. tectonics, like I get evolution. I went to school too. You know, this, I'm not an idiot, like don't think of me in that way under the perception that I was going to or that other people were going to. And so one of the things that I even talk about in the book is how this category of fossil and the category of deity are not mutually exclusive. That a shalogram stone can be simultaneously divine as well as they are perfectly well aware about what a fossil is and how a fossil is formed. And everything that goes into that.
0: I'm glad you mentioned that. I I too feel this is a really important point, and I, I'm not a. Uh, Maybe congenitally, but I'm not a trained cultural anthropologist. I, I can't help myself with every barista or Uber driver or really anybody sitting next to me on an airplane if they'll give you the time of day. But listen, uh, I, I enjoy learning from people. I really do. Um, um, but I, I, I've quipped. I've, I've quipped a number of times uh, in online courses uh, where, you know, it's my platform, so I can say whatever I want. Uh, <laughs> I, have a, I have an online school of Indian wisdom that's crystallized a couple of years ago, but I've been doing online courses since so 2017-ish. Um And I've said, listen, uh, I suspect that in the ancient world, there was what we have in the modern Indic world: this code switching. Like the same people that are doing Ganapati puja are the same people fielding tech calls a couple hours later, sometimes. Absolutely. And and it's it's this ability to understand that okay, yes, it, geological time is real. Yes, um, and, and 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 yes, perhaps there are forces um, that are that operate beyond that or even um, govern that in some sense. And what comes to mind is the stark distinction between. Um, um and uh, perhaps in a christian american context for example right mm-hmm. a stark distinction between um how old is the earth you know type thing and what, what, what geological um the 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 tension that geological phenomena and, and spans of time poses to certain uh, religious adherents, and um uh, see more about what you've learned in this context
1: no, you're absolutely right. The, I mean, the, the particular brand of Christianity you're referring to is young earth creationism, but young earth creationism has, in a sense, infiltrated a lot of the way in which American culture thinks about Christianity and the way in which Christianity is sort of perceived outside of the United States. And I think in a lot of ways, the people that I was working with originally really did have that sense of that I was gonna have not just a sort of Christian division, I'm not Christian myself, but that I was going to have this Christian division between creation and and science, so to speak, but also science coming from the academy, that I was gonna look down on religion or religious practitioners, particularly practitioners with sacred fossils, because it wasn't quote unquote scientific enough that this in some way would either lead to mockery from a scientific sense, or was going to lead to mockery from a religious sense if I was coming out of young earth creationism. So it did in fact, take a long time for me to get to know them, for them to get to know me before we really did start to conceptualize together what a collaborative project would look like. And that's what my ethics of ethnography are about is there? I don't want them to tell me anything they don't want to tell me. And that I want my work to also be a benefit for them as much as it's a benefit for me.
0: Beautiful. I would imagine a cornerstone of your work is building trust with the folks you're studying.
1: Absolutely. And you can't do this kind of work if they don't have a stake in it every step of the way. That it's not just going to be, I'm going to show up, extract this information from you, write it all down in my book, and then fly back to the United States. And that's the last time we ever talk about it. Um, instead, I've been a part of these child ground practitioner communities now for almost a decade.
0: Yeah, it's it's so interesting. I um, uh, Last week, so I've actually, I've you know, I've done a bunch of research, but last week for the first time, I've given a bunch of interviews, but they're more for podcasts and uh, write-ups and the papers and all that. <laughs> but a colleague wanted to interview me for his research project, and you know, categorically, I'm not entirely sure how comfortable I am being the subject of someone else's of research. But at the same time, um, uh, his name is Paul Bramadette. Um, you know, I don't know him personally, but I know his work. Uh, I met him a handful of times. I like his vibe. You know, I, I feel uh, sense integrity and, and 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 balance in his perspective. And he's been given this 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 great grant to study yoga in both the american and the canadian context focusing on the sociological differences and so he's going to five or six major cities one of them happens to be what i call the holy city of toronto where where, where, you know the multicultural mecca where, where i'm stationed currently and um and he's, he's 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 he was interviewing top yogis in Toronto last week, and he wanted to include me. And he goes, he goes, I know you're primarily not an asana teacher, but you know you have this book on you know the stories behind the poses. And, and I said, yeah, well, all of my students are asana teachers um, for the most part, and you know because I trusted him, right? Mm-hmm. I, I was able to just okay, I'm going to the first time for everything. And today I'm going to be the subject of a a colleague's uh, research project. Um, Tell me about the ontological status of these stones.
1: Right. So a lot of what I'm writing in, in the beginning part of the book is there's sort of this sense that happens a lot in my work, not from me personally, but from a lot of the people that I talk to, is what I would encapsulate as, yeah, but what is it really? Like that, that's kind of this, this really common question of, but, you know, a shalachrom stone is really a fossil, right? Like that's what it is. And that's really what we mean by ontology in terms of philosophy is it's this idea about what things are, like what, what beings exist in the world, what things exist in the world. And one of the things that I'm actually challenging in the book is exactly that underlying assumption that a shalogram stone is quote unquote, really a fossil. And to say, what assumptions do you have to make in order for that to be the case in the same way that a lot of my practitioners often referred to paleontology as the mythology of science. But what they meant by that was fossil is also a label with a kind of history that speaks to a kind of story. And that story is the geological and paleontological history of the world. Shalagram in the same way is a category that speaks to another kind of story. This is a different telling of the creation of the world and a different telling of the creation of the divine. And the way that Shalagram practitioners sort of reconcile these two is to look at them as both ontologically true. That the geological history of the fossil is true. It is simply the story of the Shalagram from one particular point of view. In the way that what I call uh, bouts of chastity and other curses Vishnu has endured is also a story about the creation of the world and a creation of the divine that is also true about the Shalagram stone. And I think the tension that I'm trying to hold there for readers of the book who may not ever have experienced Shalgram stones or don't really know much about them is challenging for them those taken for granted notions about when you say it's really a fossil, what do you mean by that? And how does that reveal what you think the world is?
0: I have to say sometimes I think that, um, we've either chatted about this before, <laughs> or be, so much of what you say resonates and has come up in a number of courses where I try to say to folks, so so I teach in different spaces, right? So academic teaching for undergrads and at the Oxford Center range of studies and um uh, yogi studies, etc. Um, and then I have this online wisdom school called the School of Indian Wisdom. Why does it exist? Because they could talk about what is empirically real. Mm -hmm. And overlay that with what is symbolically or spiritually real. And the students have now learned brilliantly how to code switch, right? Like what is real in an empirical, demonstrable sense that's available, availed through the scientific method, through empiricism. Mm -hmm. Is it necessarily all that is real by virtue of what we experience?
1: Exactly. In, uh, In a lot of my undergrad courses, so I also teach ANTH 101. We talk about that philosophical tension because I basically on day one, I introduced them to positivism versus phenomenology. And the idea behind it is not to say there's something necessarily wrong with a positivistic or scientific method approach. It's just that it's going to tell you specific things about the world. And those are good things to know, but it's not necessarily all there is to know about it. And so understanding the phenomenological, understanding how people approach the symbolic and the divine tells a very different story about the world and about how humans exist in that world.
0: And that's that last piece, I think it's crucial. And that's the heart of the humanities. The human experience is not in the atoms of the world. It's in our experience of the world. Exactly. And our experience of the world. Is not necessarily reducible to the actual material of the world, right? So it's so. So I find this fascinating, uh, utterly fascinating, and, and, and so in apt. I think that you uh, you point this out in your research in terms of uh, in terms of what is a telegram because because uh, uh, it, at least in your interviewees, um, uh, uh, for those who engage them in a spiritual or ritualistic manner they too see them also in a scientific geological manner as well so that that the the holding of the tension is 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 quite apt in this particular case because that same tension is held by the folks who you're, who, whose experience you're studying
1: yeah and it's also something that is directly reflective of even looking into broader policy issues, because one of the things I talk about is the degree to which climate change is currently affecting the high Himalayas, and it's also affecting Chalagron pilgrimage. The way that you frame policy or the way that people very commonly frame climate change and political policy in Nepal is through that scientific narrative. It's about protecting the landscape from global warming. It's about protecting the river from glacial melt. Whereas one of the things that I try and argue is if you actually came at it as protecting the pilgrimage, as protecting the Shalagram stones, that is something that, would, that resonates with Nepalis actually in the Kali Gandaki, rather than outside sort of policy people who don't have to live in this space and who don't live in this world. So... I think the important thing is it's also not just something that's reducible to how do we understand individual experience, but also understanding how this impacts what we do with this place and with this experience and with these stones.
0: So what do folks do with these stones?
1: That is a very long story. Um, the, Some of the things. The The short, again, the short, short version is... A, the beginning of the life of a shalogram stone starts in the Kaligandaki River Valley. It, it makes a particular kind of geological pilgrimage, if you want to call it that, itself. It comes out of the mountain, very, very high up, very high altitude. They wear out of the mountain. They sort of tumble down the mountain. They end up in the river, spend another couple thousand years churning through the silts of the river, at which point they finally appear. And the way that they're actually talked about is that they are born. They are born from the river, they're born from the womb of the Devi, and the Devi being the Kaligandaki River. And once this happens, this begins the life course of the Shalagram stone. Uh, and that means both the stone itself and the practitioner and the pilgrim who has come to the Kaligandaki to actually get this stone. That they are then also ritually born. There's a particular puja that they perform on the banks of the Kaligandaki which births the stone into their family. And then the family returns home. From there, the stone actually lives life. It lives as a living deity. It is a kin, it is a member of the family. It is treated as a member of the family. So it undergoes everyday life. Um, And that includes everyday puja, as well as obviously regular everyday life of the family. So they participate in meals, much like most Morphy do. Uh, They attend festivals, they're dressed in clothing, they preside over certain events in the family, and then eventually they are usually supposed to be inherited. So they're passed down generationally through a family who continues this, this ritual use. So what people actually do with them is what they do with their families, is sort of the short answer that... You treat a shallow grum stone exactly as you would treat a brother or a sister or a cousin or children.
0: Could you say a bit more about the spiritual or religious dimension? So, so you mentioned in passing that one would do uh, puja. So they're they're sort of um, de facto mortis. No, they are. Would they attain that only after pranapatishta, or are they considered mortis by virtue of them being? born in this manner of, from, fr- fr- from the ocean.
1: That's actually one of the, the main differences between a Shalgram stone and a regular Murti is they actually do not have any form of invocation right. They are considered to be self-manifest. Swayam- so they're vigraha forms, they are self-manifest and they take their form by their own agency. They take their form by their own choice. So their treatment is that they are always aware, they're always awake, they're always interacting with the world around them. Um, and they don't, they don't, in fact, take any form of invocation at all.
0: Do you have a sense of, um, at least in some cases, how many generations or how long they might be passed down in a family?
1: In some of the families I've worked with a very, very long time. Um, I worked with some families who actually are able to narrate nearly the entire generational history of their families through their shalagram stones, which is incredibly fascinating. So they will talk about a shalagram stone that originated with their great-great-grandparents. And they will tell the story of how the stone appeared to a great-great-grandparent, and then it was passed on to a great-grandparent and then a grandparent. And they will narrate the life history of the stone while they are simultaneously narrating the history of their own family. So it's a really vital piece for a lot of people where it isn't just kin, but it's generational kin. And it will carry that story onto the next generation that follows. It's, it really is a lot of moving stories, at least particularly for me, of people who would talk about who they got their shalagram stones from and who the shalagram stone was gonna to go to, as well as they can be, I think the root of a lot of conflict ironically as well. Um, one of the things I was looking into in Calcutta recently was there are actual court cases dating back several hundred years of essentially custody disputes over a shalagram stone uh, in the same way that you would argue you know, who's gonna get the child who's going to get the shalagram stones sort of met the same criteria.
0: Well, it just occurred to me, as you said, there were disputes and it just dawned on me that I suppose that um, anything of great value potentially creates great schism (laughs) post, uh, you know, post passing of the owner. Yeah.
1: And there were pilgrims Um, I met up in the Kaligandaki who were, second and third children who were only there because their elder sibling had gotten the family chalogram stones and now they had to start their own practice. And so they were now on pilgrimage to get their own chalogram stones to begin that narration over again.
0: What is the understanding of the benefit of having these stones in one's life in this manner?
1: So the biggest benefit behind them um, is the fact, as one of the things that I've sort of been alluding to in these stories, is that not only do shalagram stones live social lives, they they live as kin with their families, they also essentially recapitulate the karmic cycle. The karmic life of a shalagram stone is so that when someone dies, very typically, one of the shalagram stones, usually their favorite stone, is taken out of the collection and is brought with the deceased to the cremation pyre. And so this was something that I actually saw reasonably often in Kathmandu, for example. That when the body is brought to the cremation pyre, particularly if the body is brought to a cremation pyre on the banks of the river, the understanding is, is that the shaligram stone is then burned with the body. So the body is reduced to ashes. Obviously the stone itself doesn't burn. But then the ashes and the stone are gathered up together and returned to the river And what happens is that the shalagram stone will return to samsara in your place. So it will allow you to pass into the presence of God. It will erase your karmic debt and then take on that karmic debt itself and then return. And then it will begin that karmic life cycle over again when it now appears in the river again for a new pilgrim.
0: So no wonder they're so valuable. They're a one-way ticket out of samsara.
1: They are. That. If, and practitioners will say, any home wherein a shalagram lives, the shalagram will also protect you from bad spirits. Um, One of the things they commonly said is that no no hungry or evil spirit can enter a space that a shalagram can see without its permission. And so not only is it protecting your home from bad karma and from bad spirits, it will take you into the presence of the divine at your death and then return in your place.
0: Can I, can I get one on Amazon perhaps? No I'm kidding.
1: <laughs> actually, you can. Okay. That's the bad news. Well then. Um, but short answer is you actually can.
0: Um, fascinating. What would you say the, the primary takeaway of your research is?
1: I think the primary takeaway of my work is one of the most fascinating things to me about Chaligram practice globally is that it is a ritual practice that dates back thousands of years easily if not more than that but it is a ritual practice based around a certain group of stones that transcends nationality it transcends caste it transcends religion there are three separate religions that go on pilgrimage to get Chaligram stones So it challenges virtually every categorical boundary we have thinking about how humans work, that we don't imagine this thing that could be so, I wouldn't say universally human, but so broadly human in that it's not even a tradition followed by the same religion or a group of people from one particular country or one particular ethnicity. It transcends all of that. And that's sort of fascinating to realize when you think about how complicated shalagram practice actually is.
0: Yeah, it, becomes, it becomes, um, becomes challenging to sort of, you know, ascribe a motivation or ascribe a, a sort of a sectarian impulse or or, or, to really categorize the phenomena. Like it defies the boundaries we normally think of as religion or caste, as you say.
1: uh, I think one of the questions I get very commonly is like, but is this a Hindu practice? Or is this a Buddhist practice? Or is this a Bon practice? And the answer is yes. Like yes to all of that.
0: This practice was there before those traditions began.
1: (laughs) Yes, that too. Um, And that itself is also fascinating in that whatever the original Shalgram practice was, was something that was taking place before those words actually existed.
0: Who uh, might most benefit from your book?
1: I would definitely recommend it, obviously, for specialists in South Asian religion. Um, I think very specifically, my intro is talking to them anyway. But I would actually also recommend it for anyone who is specifically interested in challenging the boundaries of what they think religion is. Um, If you have a particular interest in Hindu or Buddhist religious practice, or if you have an interest in religion broadly, I think you would find, anyone would find the idea of sacred ammonite fossils to be very fascinating. I mean, I certainly did, but I'm biased
0: well well indeed i mean I, I had this fascinating experience i i had the good fortune of going out to um mcmaster university in hamilton ontario an hour and a half away from the holy city of toronto uh, i'm i'm uh, rumor has it i'm a, um i'm a, a chaplain there uh, the, these days as well so remotely but but i went out to do some talks on diwali and you know i have a a, a couple of a, a, I didn't do jewelry my whole life, to be honest. And I think 2020, I broke the seal. I have a a couple of, um, there were gifts, actually, a couple of rings that I wear, a couple of gems that I wear. And uh, one of the other chaplains, we were talking about Diwali, it was was open Q&A, and clearly people felt comfortable to ask me anything. She goes, I have to ask. Those gems are so captivating. Do they have some sort of spiritual significance? (laughs) (laughs) 3,000 years ago, such a one would have asked the same about one of these stones, I'm sure. <laughs> oh,
1: absolutely. Um, and I think, I mean, I actually do have a small collection of shalagram stones myself. I, I do keep a small group of them, mostly because I use them in teaching. So they they are all shalagrams I found myself while I was uh, living up in Nepal. And they've always been with me, and, and I take care of them, and they take care of me. But at the same time, a, you know, a university professor wandering around with a box of fossils is not necessarily beyond the pale for anyone. So they don't usually ask me that kind of question, like do they have spiritual significance until I show up in a religion classroom. And then it's, what are you doing with a box of fossils?
0: Well, it's hilarious. Well, I'm, 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 we're having, we're having lunches, uh, I think eight, 10 chaplains. Uh, we use the Diwali event as a means of bringing us together. To, to 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 break bread or non or or, or whatever um and uh yeah of course they're, they're all they're all spiritually tuned so they're they're asking you know what's you know you know what is that is is that spiritual bling is that what that is <laughs> but <laughs> um is there anything else about the book that you hope to touch on today
1: i think one of the other important things to mention i've, I've alluded to it a little bit but i don't talk about it until the The latter part of the book is, I think one of the best received chapters in the book um, is called Ashes and Immortality, it's chapter eight, about death and the digital afterlife. That one does not often think about digital religion when they're thinking about sacred fossils, but there is currently going on a kind of online Shalogram revival. And it's something that I've been following uh, for the last several months in particular. And sort of what I mean by that is that online spaces have provided a lot of Shalgram practitioners the ability to communicate with one another and meet with one another and and sort of begin to have conversations about their practice over across national boundaries. But one of the primary concerns that practitioners have that I always bring up in these conversations is about the commodification of Shalgram stones. And when you ask, for example, can I get one on Amazon? The answer is yes, you actually can. Um, You can get them on eBay and Etsy sometimes too. But the sellers who are behind that are generally speaking, sometimes they're scrupulous, sometimes they're unscrupulous, but shawl practitioners themselves actually have a ban on monetary exchange for sacred stones. You cannot put a price on them and you actually are never supposed to exchange them for money. They should only ever be exchanged via um, inheritance. So they should only be exchanged being passed down or they should be gifts between friends. Um, so the way a shalogram is supposed to move is through human relationships. You're supposed to have a good relationship with someone and then the shalogram sort of either speaks to them or speaks to you that it is time for it to move. But the rise of commodification of shalogram stones is a really serious issue because it's also leading to problems having to do with people now going into the Kaligandaki River Valley, taking large numbers of Shaligram stones out of Nepal and then explicitly doing that to sell them and sometimes sell them for hundreds of dollars, sometimes thousands of dollars. And what that does is it straight up takes the practice away from Indians and Nepalese who certainly simply can't afford Five $600 for a shalogram stone, no matter how much they want one.
0: Interesting times in which we live.
1: Absolutely. So I would say mostly, yes, you can buy them on Amazon.
0: But don't. <laughs>
1: Please don't buy them on Amazon.
0: <laughs> I was thinking to myself, look, you know, I, th- I thought it was a facetious. Uh, I can get moksha via <laughs> an Amazon purchase. But little did I know there are people doing just that as we speak. So. No, you can't get moksha through an Amazon purchase, so don't <laughs> no, buy no, them. You, you actually cannot
1: spend five hundred dollars for it to pay back your karmic debt. It, it, it
0: doesn't work. that No, way. it won't work, people. Okay. Well, thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, obviously, uh, I'm I'm always happy to talk talk more about chalagram stones.
0: I love that attitude. It's it's the best attitude when you approach an author, and they're like, "Yeah," or either implicit or explicitly, "Yeah, let's do it." <laughs> Yeah, you know, naturally we all have we all have insecurities, we all, you know, we we have various uh, levels of familiarity with podcasts. Some days we have various um abilities to speak and sit up. I hope this was <laughs> somewhat coherent for you. Particularly um
1: during these pandemic times
0: yeah, uh, the, the 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 podcast really took off of the pandemic. I considered it my war effort because people needed content and they were at home and cloistered. And so, April twenty twenty, I sort of, uh, um, uh, I sort of amped it up, and um, I thought that would be temporary. I sort of amped it up to four to six podcasts a month. Oh wow! And um, somehow that's continued, and I haven't. I haven't attained the city of uh, Chaya Murtis or, or shadow selves to do, or minions to do work for me. So I'm not sure how this is all happening, but it's happening. And I assure my listeners, I sleep eight hours a night. Um, well, thank you for appearing on the podcast. Um, just hang on a minute after we close, we'll just chat. Uh, for those of you listening, we've been speaking to Holly Walters on this really, really fascinating um, book on this really fascinating phenomenon of, of shadowgram pilgrimage uh, in the Nepal Himalayas. Until next time, um, keep well, keep listening and keep contemplating the spiritual power of, um, fossilized entities. Take care.
1: Thank you.